This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. On the show today, we'll learn why the United States has not made more progress healing the climate that supports our lifestyle and our economy. My guest is Jane Mayer, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the 2016 best-selling book, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. The book chronicles the political influence of well-known characters such as Charles and David Koch, John Olin, and Sheldon Adelson, as well as their operatives working behind the scenes. Jane Mayer's recent reporting focuses on Robert Mercer, the reclusive hedge fund tycoon and climate skeptic behind the Trump presidency. She also wrote the 2008 bestseller, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned into a war on American ideals. Over the next hour, we'll explain Jane Mayer's dark side and include questions from our live, not her dark side, (laughs) (laughs) the dark side with Jane Mayer, uh, include questions from our live audience here in Silicon Valley. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Jane Mayer. So, Jane, you start uh, the book with, focusing on the Koch brothers and note that these libertarians uh, inherited a fortune that was made in part by doing business with two of history's most notorious dictators, Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Connect those dots for us. Well, um, the, the father in the family, Fred Koch, figured out a, a new way to refine oil in this country, and he had a hard time selling it. The major oil companies were kind of blocking him. And so he, in order to make money, took his discovery elsewhere. And the first thing he did was build up uh, the Soviet Union's oil business for Stalin. And then I was trying to figure out what this family was about and get the family stories, and somebody said to me, well, then the father went over to Germany to do some work, and it was sort of the late 1930s, and I was thinking, Germany in the late 1930s, that's a strange time and place to be working. So I started digging a little bit deeper, and sure enough, it turned out that he and a partner were building a refinery that had to be green-lighted by Hitler, and that became very important to the Hitler war effort in World War II, according to all kinds of um, historians that I interviewed about World War II and, and military industrial history. So um, so the father, not only that, but when you're doing a book like this, you really don't know what you're going to find, but not only had the father gotten this um, refinery built for Hitler, 
but he had been quite impressed with the German culture and brought back a nanny to raise the Koch brothers, who turned out to be a Nazi. So I was thinking, you know, how often do you get a Nazi nanny for the two of the (laughs) billionaires who are dominating American politics? It was kind of like one of those days when you're sitting alone on a book and you think, oh, God, thank you. Um, (laughs) This is just too interesting. I can't wait to tell people this story. So... And you write that there's someone who worked for the Koch family, Clayton Coppin, who actually connected this father figure with some of the ideology of the family. Well, yeah. So Clayton Coppin, was, he was actually at first a libertarian himself and a professor of history, and he was hired by the Koch family to do a kind of a, a secret biography of the first of the company and then of the family. And... Um, so he, he went through all the papers in the family and letters and interviewed people, and he came up with this theory that I thought was very interesting about why Charles Koch is such an ardent libertarian. And his thought was that Charles's father, Fred, was this overbearing sort of John Wayne-like character who was very tough on these boys, and that, um, and that Charles was attracted to an ideology that, had, that sort of crushed all all kinds of rules and limits. Libertarianism, he had this ideal of no rules, no government. The government was, in his, according to Clayton Coppin, the final thing that could stop him after his father. And so he wanted to just tear it all down. I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know if that's a fair interpretation. I was not able to interview uh, Charles and David Koch, but I thought it was certainly worth noting that that a man who spent a number of years doing a, a kind of a secret history of the family for the family came up with this theory, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So they inherit this money, and they actually uh, kind of sort of came sideways into their political activism. It was kind of a, for tax planning reasons, you write. It wasn't like that they had political ambitions. Like They had all this money. They had to find tax-efficient ways to use it, and they started giving it away to these organizations. So tell us how they got involved in politics. Well, so they first they were raised by their father, Fred, who became extremely anti-communist after working with Stalin and seeing people he knew were, were killed and sent off to gulags. And so he came back to this country and helped found the John Birch Society, um, and, and the boys were raised in that environment, and, 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 and Charles and David were both members of the John Birch Society as young men, so they were kind of inculcated in, in their worldview, but they also had inherited hundreds of millions of dollars, each, each of these boys did, there were four in the family actually, and, and their father's estate planning hit upon a mechanism, which was if you could put away some of the money and, and donate the interest to charity, you could avoid paying inheritance taxes. And so rather than just giving it to you know, um, some exist, United Way or some existing charity, they created a family foundation, and they gave the money to that and then, and then started pouring that into conservative causes. So it made them, and, and, and David Koch has talked about this, he, he became a philanthropist for um, tax reasons, to avoid um, inheritance taxes. And they found that it gave them a lot of influence. To give away that kind of money um, every year makes you have a, a super loud voice in this country, and, and they kind of liked it. 
And you write about, uh, there's a person named Rob Stein who's kind of done a mapped out the influence of, of the right in this, this concerted effort of think tanks, beachheads at universities. So sketch out that, that grand plan for us. Right. So Rob Stein is um, someone who's a liberal who studied the Kochs to try to figure out what they were doing. And, and he put together this, this massive chart that looks like something from A Beautiful Mind, that movie where you, you, know, <laughs> you might be crazy looking at it. But in fact, what he, he credits them with doing is founding something that he calls movement conservatism, um, move, or movement philanthropy. Basically, taking philanthropy, weaponizing this idea of giving money away to good causes, but instead of them being things like funding hospitals or um, uh, you know libraries, they were funding politics, their political projects, and they, every year they'd pour more money into it, and it became a kind of a political machine for them, a tax-deductible political machine. They've been running up against the, uh, the administrative state, um, and we're going to show a clip here. Doreen Carlson's husband, Donald, worked for 23 years at Coke Refinery in the Minneapolis area until he got sick. Here's the story of Doreen I'm Carlson. I'm Doreen Carlson. I live in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. My husband is Donald Carlson, who passed away 20 years ago. He worked for Coke Refinery and had become exposed to benzene, which uh, caused a uh, pre-leukemic disease. He did have to clean tanks. Um, when he first started working there, there wasn't any uniforms or anything. They wore their regular clothes, yeah. They, yeah it was smelt like gas. The boots would be soaked. The clothes were pretty dirty. I knew it didn't smell great, but hadn't heard much about um, the toxicity of the, you know, the products till actually till he got sick. In August '95, they said he couldn't work anymore, and he was in the hospital. And uh, in January of '97, he passed away that February 28th. So I got a letter from the lawyer within a month. Of my husband, one Coquan, talked to me and offered me money. Uh, they didn't do anything wrong, and I would have to sign a confidentiality agreement. I started doing my own research, then realized his hemoglobin had been going down since 1990. And they waited till it was nine. I think there was someone that got like 14. So I fought with them as long as I could. And I, I had another reason for not selling. I, I thought maybe it would go on the record somewhere that he died of this so that maybe someone else wouldn't have to fight so hard. Within a few minutes of going in the courtroom, Cope then said, give her the work comp. What they should have given my husband before he died. It was a very rude awakening for people who live in a world where you, you um, follow the rules. And then you find out the people who are the most successful and important, they don't have to follow the rules kind of a hard thing to swallow. That was during Doreen Carlson, whose husband died of cancer after working at a Coke refinery for 23 years and being exposed to toxic levels of benzene. She did not settle. Uh, and Jane Mayer, how many Doreen Carlsons, how many you know, Donald Carlsons are there out there? Do we know? Well, I mean, they're, you know, it's impossible to say with specificity how many they are, but this fight is the fight that is at the core of, 
of politics today in many ways and in and the core of the Koch's fight. What happened was, beginning in around the 1970s with the environmental movement and with Ralph Nader, and um, there was a, a push in this country to try to make workplaces safer, um, discovery that a lot of the things that kind of chemicals were toxic and that we needed to try to um, have regulations that would control human exposure to these things. And um, the problem for Coke Industries was that was expensive. And um, and complying with those laws cost them. And Doreen Carlson's husband was, uh, you know, a casualty of that right there in the middle of that fight. He worked for Coke Industries for 23 years, as she says. Um, he was a very dedicated worker. He was known as Bull because he, he was a bull of a man who would do any job. And when he got sick, he, they, they kind of hid from him what he was exposed to and what this was all about. And, um, and then when he died, Coke Industries refused to give this widow... Um, workman's compensation for it. She, they, as she says, they were going to give her a pittance, a little payment, and, and shut her up, make her sign a non-disclosure agreement. There are many people who work for Coke Industries who've had to s- sign non-disclosure agreements, and one of the things that was hard about writing the book that I did was you can't interview an awful lot of people because legally they're, they're not allowed to talk to you, and they're very scared they're going to be sued somehow. But anyway, she is a really interesting kind of American character, um, someone who just held her ground, and she said, I won't take your money. I'm going to tell my story, and you're going to pay me workman's compensation because you killed my husband by exposing him to these chemicals. And they went round after round, and finally she was taking them to court, and they were actually literally outside the courtroom in the courthouse building when the the officials from Coke Industry said, all right, give her the money, give her the workman's comp. Um, And it was, you know, I I thought it was quite moving. When I I interviewed her, I was kind of amazed. And, um, you know, she's not... She's not rich, not incredibly well-educated, but she did it because she wanted people to understand what this is really about. And she said to me when I interviewed her, they, they are fighting regulations, and they're saying that regulations for, are bad for people in this country. Regulations are what saves the lives of people like my husband. How often do little people, you know, little people, not she's not little, but people, average people, take on the Coke Empire? Is it something like do they just? Is this a cost of doing business where they set, occasionally settle a suit like this, and they're making so many profits that just like sexual harassment suits at New, Fox News sort of thing as part of, you know, you pay a little bit as you go along. And They've had a, 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 an epic legal history. I mean, they've had some enormous cases and some of the biggest environmental cases in the country are against Coke Industries. And I mean, not surprisingly, because the EPA classifies them as the largest um, uh, producers of, of, of toxic waste in the country and one of the largest air polluters, climate polluters and water polluters. But there are, there are small people 
who stood up and to this, and they and many of them were kind of my heroes as I was writing the book. And again, there are often people who are you know not particularly powerful. There, there's one. There's a story of a man in the book named Phil DeBose, who um, worked for Coke Industries for many years, and he he went along with a lawsuit that accused Coke Industries of cheating. Um, and lying and and covering up their pollution, and it went on and on and on. And eventually, in a civil case version of the original suit, um, he and his side won. And I so I said to him, uh, he lives down in in Louisiana. And when I interviewed him, there were like dogs barking in the background. And and I said to him, so you know, how did you do that against this? This is the second largest mm. private company in America. And he said, well, we had something that was stronger than the Koch brothers. And I said, what was that? And he said, the truth. (laughs) So, you know, you can't make up lines like this. It's pretty incredible. Did you get insiders to talk to you? These are people who are no longer affiliated with the company. How about people inside now? And what kind of cloak of secrecy is there around the Koch empire? There's a lot of secrecy. Um, They'll talk to people who they feel are going to, you know, give them good publicity, but I think they didn't think that was going to be me. Um, and so I had a very hard time getting cooperation from them. And, and part of the reason the book took five years was it, it took a number of years to get sources. I did finally get sources on the inside, but I really can't describe them without compromising sources. But um, it wouldn't have been possible to tell the story in the kind of detail I did without cooperation from people. The Koch brothers used to operate, and this whole organization used to operate in in darkness, largely thanks to you and your reporting. There's a lot more light on it now. How has that changed the way it operates, that there's more scrutiny? Well, they've they've actually, they've they've done a lot to try to improve their image. Um, And and it's been interesting to watch. Um, Luckily, there was... particularly after 2012, when they put a ton of money into trying to elect Romney um, and defeat Obama. And when that didn't work out, um, they went back to the drawing board to try to figure out what went wrong. And um, what's interesting is they had a meeting with a number of the big donors that they work with, um, whose money was being pooled, and there was a tape that leaked of the discussion, and and it's it's almost comic. At some point, they say, you know, what we've 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 discovered from they did all these focus groups and polling and stuff, and and they came back and they said, you know, people think we're greedy. Um, and, uh, and, uh, How much did that cost? They don't trust <laughs> us, and so the, so they actually uh, embarked on a, a, a pretty large image renovation project that included, and you can hear it when you listen to this tape, um, they talk about what they've discovered they need to do is form unlikely alliances with people who who um, the public wouldn't expect them to work with and to do things that look like they're, they're not self-interested. So it was pretty soon after that that they started talking about criminal justice reform, which has become one of their big issues, and working with um, a number of black leaders um, putting money into um, the, the historically black colleges and the United Negro College Fund, and and they've they've been working on this. And I mean, you could be cynical. I'm probably somewhat cynical about this, and think you know this is all in the in you know working towards cleaning up their image and trying to be more effective politically. But at least they are putting some money into some good causes while they're you know serving their own cause. 
One of the organizations associated uh, with ALEC, uh, a lot of corporations have stepped back or no longer renewed their uh, membership in the American Legislative Exchange Council. Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Walmart, Bank of America uh, have stepped back from ALEC. So has that affected ALEC's effectiveness or is it just morphed into something else? I, I think it's still relatively effective. I mean, what the Cokes did, and it's interesting to look at at this point when people are sort of throwing up their hands and saying, well, what can we do in this country? Um, they, they have a very interesting, and, and it, for them it was an effective playbook, which was they went local. They, they started in a place that was way, way far out on the right fringe of American politics, so far out that, that William F. Buckley called them anarcho-totalitarians. Um, and so they, they, had, they, they, they had no ability to really have much power from where they were, but they've moved in those, the years since about 1980, till now, they've moved their vision to the center of the Republican Party and really captured the Republican Party in many ways. And so how did they do it? One of the things they did was they went local. They went to state legislatures where their money went further and they they, um, pushed candidates that shared their view. Um, they funded campaigns on the local level, and they they pushed their legislation in the state legislatures, where it doesn't take that much money to try to sort of buy off a legislator um, or convince a legislator to put it. <laughs> um, and so, um, and 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 they 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 worked at it and worked at it, and and 2010 was really their killer year for t- taking over state legislatures, and it was a particularly strategic one, and they knew this at the time. 2010 was the year that um, that there was a new census, every, they come out every 10 years, and the legislatures were gerrymandering the congressional districts after that. And so they knew if you could put Republicans in all these state legislatures in the majority, they would draw up the congressional districts for the next 10 years. And they did. And they gerrymandered districts all over the country that have given you know, wonderful advantages in places like North Carolina to the, to the conservative Republican candidates. Um, and so you, know, you look at this playbook, and um, you can see you could learn a lot from it, really. Um, and and it, you know, anyway, I think it's, it, it's instructive to see how they did it. It's interesting that both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Barack Obama out of office are focusing on redistricting in that area, playing a little bit of catch up with the Koch brothers. The Democrats were, I have to say, asleep at the switch on this one. Um, And, um, you know... (laughs) In, in 2008, Barack Obama and uh, John McCain basically had the same position on climate change. It's something we can fix. We need to do it. Uh, in 2012, it did not play in the campaign at all. There was, cl- there was climate silence. 2016, there was polarization, uh, Clinton and Trump being in very different places. How much of that is due to the funding from the people you've been writing about? I, I would argue that the best example of the influence money has in politics or in this country is is climate change um, policy because it starts out with going back with you know from Nixon and the early and the Bush presidencies. Uh, environmental policy was in the very beginning a bipartisan issue, and and what's happened is it's been captured um, by one 
party. This, this anti-climate change push comes from the Republican Party, which is funded by the fossil fuel industry. And they have focused their efforts on that, and they've really moved the whole party in their direction with money. Um, and that you now have... Uh, there was a chart that the New York Times ran very recently. I don't know if people saw it. But if you take a look, at, it's a graph of the whole country, and it shows what opinion on climate change is. And all across the country, in almost every, every state, every county, people in this country believe climate change is real, it's a danger, it's caused by man-made activities, and we should do something about it. I live in Washington, D.C., where the Congress is, and where Scott Pruitt is the EPA director. It's almost the only place that has exactly the opposite point of view. And there's really no other explanation for it except the money that's going into those people's pockets. I'm sorry. If you're just joining us, this is Climate One from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking with Jane Mayer, author of the 2016 bestseller, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Uh, We talked to a UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley researcher about his relationship with Charles Koch. He told us, don't believe everything you hear. My name is Richard Muller. I am a retired professor of physics at the University of California at Berkeley, co-founded along with my daughter Elizabeth, uh, something we call Berkeley Earth, to answer outstanding questions about climate change. This was about six years ago. And the current state of the belief was that 97% of all scientists agree that climate change was real and caused by humans. I mean, I was a skeptic, but the word skeptic has several meanings. In, in science, every scientist has a duty to be skeptical. I didn't know whether global warming was twice as bad as they were saying, or half as bad, or non-existent. I, I just felt that the published papers did not meet the scientific standards that I had been trained were the minimal scientific standards for science. Mr. Koch came to a presentation of mine and I talked to him afterwards and he was interested. This was Charles, the Charles Koch Foundation. He had no, as near as I can tell, no preconception as to what our answer would be. He was very interested in finding out what our answer would be. So he helped support us. The, The rule was that he wouldn't hear our results before they were published. And in the end, we concluded that global warming was real. I don't know whether I convinced him or not, but I do know that he is currently saying global warming is real and caused by humans. Uh, He is saying that he's not sure it's bad for humanity. That's a separate issue that Berkeley Earth has not addressed. People make a characterization of people they don't know. They have no idea what Mr. Koch is really like. They have no idea what I'm like. The caricature is that I was a skeptic. Mr. Koch funded me because he wanted to prove it was wrong. I proved it was right, and he's deeply now regrets having done that. The truth is nowhere near that. That was a researcher, Richard Muller, a former climate change skeptic who now accepts the scientific consensus. Jay Mayer, your response to his story and, and how it reflects your reporting. Well, he's, he's not in my, in my book, but, um, you know, he, I guess he's a physicist, not a climate scientist, Correct. right? And, I, and uh, I would say he's also not a historian, from what I can tell, because he says in this clip that Charles Koch came to him with an open mind in 2012. Um, and by then, okay, by then, <laughs> between 2005 and 2008 alone, Koch 
the Koch family put $25 million into funding denial of climate change. They were described by Greenpeace as kingpins of denial in this country. Between 2003 and 2010, according to Robert Bruhl, who's a, a, a professor at Drexel who's followed the money on climate change, there was $500 million in this country put into denial of climate change. Um, a lot of that came from the Kochs. And so um, he may be able to follow, follow the, the stars or physics, but I don't think he follows the money. Sorry. And a related theme is this idea of beachheads. Uh, Richard Muller is University of California, Berkeley. There's others. So tell us about beachheads and how the uh, funding goes into universities to sort of uh, profit, uh, advance ideas and, and buy yeah, scholarship. I mean, what it, you know, and this has been a longer project, which is sort of to create kind of what Kellyanne Conway might call alternative facts. And um, so there are centers that the Kochs fund now in 350 universities and colleges in this country that are, are aimed at sort of promoting their ideology. Um, you know, and I think one other thing I want to say about this clip that's interesting is that, that, that it is true that Charles Koch has now said in more recent time that he thinks, well, maybe there is climate change. Um, and, and, you know, he would, it's become, I think, almost impossible to deny, um, though Scott Pruitt is still questioning it. But, um, but, but, but listen to the second thing that he's saying. It's something that, that this man who I just wrote about in The New Yorker, who's worked with the Kochs and, and on political projects, funding them too. Bob Mercer also says, they are saying, okay, maybe climate change is real, but maybe it's going to be great. Um, and um, so they are sort of t- describing how it may result in more arable land, um, great, you know, greater pro- crop productions and things like that. I mean, it's, they have yet to say, we need to do something about it and stop it. And that's what I, I will, uh, you know, that'll, it may, that day may come. It may become impossible not to, to face that. But I haven't heard them get there yet. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Bob Mercer. Uh, he was a Cruz supporter who switched to Trump. One of the people you interviewed in your recent New Yorker article said Trump would not be president were it not for uh, Bob Mercer. So tell us about him and his daughter. Sure. Um, the person who said that is Nick Patterson, who is someone who worked with Bob Mercer for many years at a hedge fund that Bob Mercer runs, Renaissance Technology. Um, Bob Mercer is a brilliant, brilliant uh, computer scientist and mathematician who used to work at IBM where he um, and a team did the kind of preliminary work for Google Translate. They figured out how you could use computers to take all the jumble of data that language is and translate one language into another. Um, They then, um, he was recruited by a hedge fund that thought, well, maybe you could use those same skills to take the jumble of data in the stock markets and the commodities markets and, and, and take a computer and write algorithms that would allow you to predict how the markets are going to move, um, give you the jump as traders on other traders. And so um, it's worked fantastically. Um, Renaissance Technologies is, a, is it's based in Long Island. It's a, it's a small and very secretive hedge fund that has been described by many financial um, publications as the most lucrative hedge fund in the world. Um, and Bob Mercer is the co-manager of it at this point. 
And his daughter, Rebecca Mercer, uh, was described as one person as the first lady of the alt-right. That is what um, another conservative said that she wants to be. Bob Mercer's got a daughter who's about, I think she's 43 years old now. And her, what, what happened when this family got so rich, um, they, were, they were, you know, kind of ordinary, middle class, very brainy family, but the kids went to public school and they didn't live in a fancy house. And, um, but when the father got to this hedge fund and it started minting money, he, he, he started earning what people think is about $135 million a year. And he had, um, it allowed him and the family to kind of indulge their wildest dreams. And um, among the dreams was really changing the direction of American politics. And that's his daughter is the political activist in the family. And she's wanted to really change the kind of politics we have in the country. From the, again, they want to push it way off to the kind of libertarian far right. We're talking with New Yorker writer Jane Mayer at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're going to go to our lightning round, a series of brief questions and brief answers uh, for Jane Mayer. First one is um, true or false. Uh, Billionaire Bob Mercer was sued in 2013 by three of his household staff for failure to pay overtime as promised. This is true, but he had an excuse. He docked their wages because they hadn't followed his instruction to throw out every shampoo bottle when there was two-thirds or more used. Uh, True or false, when CIA Director Mike Pompeo was in the House of Representatives, he was known as the congressman from Coke. That is correct. True or false, the billionaires you have researched have compiled a dossier detailing your darkest secrets. Well, at least they thought they were my darkest secrets. <laughs> we'll come back to whether they've... Um, single, this is a one-word answer. Uh, which American politician rose to power in the last century, more fueled by oil money than any other? Probably Lyndon Baines Johnson. Didn't expect that one, did you? <laughs> uh, last question. If you could interview any one of the living billionaires in your book, Dark Money, which one would you choose? I really would love to talk to Charles Koch. I think he's a fascinating and a major figure in our politics. That ends our lightning round. Let's give Jane Mayer a round of for making it through that. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. How to counteract the fire hose of dark money being pumped into the Republican political agenda? Billionaire activist Tom Steyer hopes to do just that with his support of environmental causes. And when Steyer visited Climate One during last year's campaign season, he pointed out that Democrats aren't the only voters who care about clean energy. If you go around the country and ask Republicans, do you want the government to accelerate the move to clean energy, you get 75% of Republicans who want that. So it's not true that Republicans aren't up the learning curve. They're very positive about clean energy, and they've moved a lot in the last two years specifically pretty much in lockstep with American business. So as American business has actually come around to, we have to do it, we can do it, we can make money doing it, it's a good thing for us to be part of for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that we're patriotic Americans, Republican voters have moved the exact same way. The Republican elected officials are in a very different place on energy and climate than Republican voters. And the country is ready to move, but we are being held hostage 
by elected officials who are not actually representing the views of their own constituents, of their own party. That's Tom Steyer, business leader and philanthropist, speaking at Climate One in 2016. Now back to Greg Dalton and his conversation with author Jane Mayer. What motivates, you've written about Robert Mercer, we haven't talked much about Richard Scaife, uh, John Olin, uh, these people have more money than, than you know, you can, anyone can imagine. What motivates them? Is it money? Is it love? Is it power? You know, I, the, one of the things that, that, that struck me when I was writing about them was, and people have said about, um, for instance, about Trump, that he can't be doing this for money because he's got enough money. But, 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 or, but what I discovered with a lot of these people is for many of them, there's never enough money. Um, and it's not really about money for, you know, for getting, um, you know, the groceries or whatever. It's, it's, the money is a measure of their success and power and maybe the, their acclaim and who knows, maybe it's their father's love, whether or not they got enough in the inheritance. Um, I mean, there's one woman whose story I love in the book. She's a minor figure, but she, her name is Susan Gore of the Gore-Tex family. And um, she was very rich, and they were dividing up the inheritance in her family on the basis of how many kids each, each of the siblings in the family had. And um, she had one less child than the other siblings. So she literally went to court to try to adopt her ex-husband. Um, <laughs> and and um, it went through many rounds. Eventually, it was ruled Ill- not a legitimate strategy. But <laughs> I wonder how much she was going to pay him to say, yeah, let me a- adopt you. Um, what is the relationship of these people? Some of them call Trump a clown. Uh, many of them, as you write, Bob Mercer did not support Trump. But some of them supported Mike Pence first. What's the relationship with Trump? With, with which one? With the Mercers or with Mercers, the, with the yeah, other? The, I mean, group. it's the, the, so the Kochs bought by, by this last year, by 2016, they had very high hopes of finally putting in someone in the White House who would be kind of their candidate. Um, and they'd put together a group of major conservative donors that that had pledged $889 million that they were going to spend in this last election cycle. And they were just waiting for the Republican nominee to emerge. And as you remember, what were there, 17 different candidates? Um, And they pretty much could have lived with almost any of them except Trump. Um, And the wrong one came out from their standpoint. And so they were kind of had a crisis um, and they started pouring their money instead into congressional, gubernatorial, Senate races, and even lower-level races all over the country instead. Um, so they've had a kind of a, a, a complicated relationship with Trump. Many of the people that they have um, worked with, and even some of their funders um, from their group, such as Betsy DeVos, are now part of the Trump administration. And, and there's more and more reporting that's coming out. There was just something recently that shows how many people are, you know, in senior levels in the Trump administration who were previously working for the Kochs. And there are a lot of them, um, which is, you know, it's not just, and, and there are people like Mike Pompeo, who you mentioned at the CIA. Um, and um, and is Mike, Pence their guy? I've got to say, Mike Pence, in, in 2012, 
when Charles Koch was trying to figure out who he would really want to have run for president, Mike Pence was his number one choice. So um, Pence is someone that they love. And Mark Short, who's working for Mike Pence in the White House, I, think, I can't remember if he's his chief of staff or some top job for Mike Pence, ran the Koch's um, money business, their whole political money operation until you know, a year and a half ago. So you've got people in there who, who are kind of Coke people. Um, but, but Trump himself is not their kind of, um, of politician. For, for one thing, he, they feel he's not um, conservative enough. They feel that he, you know, he supports big, uh, expensive programs like Social Security and Medicare. And that's big government from their standpoint that they want to get rid of. Um, so... Mercer, on the other hand, um, Rebecca Mercer and Bob Mercer became the funders who really saved Trump's neck in the final round of the campaign. Trump was really in, in rocky shape in the very end. It was after that tape came out, the Access Hollywood tape. His uh, chief, his, his, the man that was running his campaign, Paul Manafort, had to quit under you know with with one headline after another tying him to Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs. It was a mess. And um, Cruz had failed. The Mercers were looking for a candidate, and they really wanted to defeat Hillary Clinton. And Trump was the last man standing. And they jumped in, said, we'll give you a couple million dollars, but you've got to hire our people. And they had their own political operatives who had been working with them. One was Steve Bannon, um, and another was Kellyanne Conway, who was running their uh, political, uh, outside political pack. And so their people and their money helped really sort of drag Trump over the finish line. At any point, did you get people to acknowledge the irony that these people who want to shrink government have made fortunes from government contracts? Uh, me, I think it's a wonderful question. And it was, it's not just government contracts. I mean, one of the things that made Bob Mercer such a success, again, as I mentioned, was this, this, this work he did at IBM. And IBM didn't really fund it properly, and they needed more money, and they, it wasn't going to work unless they could find outside funding. And where did they go? The federal government. They went to the Defense Department, and DARPA funded that, that mm-hmm. work that they did. And it was that success that then helped him, you know, be seen as someone to hire by Renaissance Technology. So he owes the federal government lots. But for some reason, he, according to the people I interviewed who work with him, once said he wants to shrink the federal government down to the size of a pinhead. And he he now says he doesn't think anybody should get government aid, um, that it coddles people, and that um, people need to make it on their own. Looking ahead, what have these people uh, that you've written about, what have they done to... to pass it on to the, to the next generation. We've talked about Rebecca Mercer, uh, don't know about the Kochs or others. What plans are there for these, their causes to outlive these individuals? Well, I mean, to, as far as passing it on to the next generation, one of the things that's, that's literally alive and in front of Congress that both the Kochs and the Mercers have pushed for is to get rid of estate taxes. You can then pass it on to the next generation without paying anything. And and I, you know, I, I think that it's something. It's that, uh, you know, I really think 
in this country, we don't want to become an aristocracy where there's just one class that owns so much of the, the, the goods in this country and the wealth in this country, because it begins to destabilize the democracy if it gets too out of whack. Um, you know, you, it's, it's hard to have one man, one vote, and everyone be politically equal when you have that kind of inequality going on. And so I worry about that. In 2011, the feuding Koch brothers uh, had a ceasefire. There had been a civil war. Tell us about that, that settlement, and then you end with a, a line from Bill Koch talking about his brothers. Well, yeah, I, this is not the Brady Bunch, the Koch family. <laughs> um, they were, they, they, for, for decades, they litig- the brothers litigated against each other. They, there were four brothers. People think of two. The two we know of was one team, and there was another team of brothers on the other side. And they were fighting over the family money and control of, of Koch Industries. Um, and they, they, it got so nasty that when um, there, there was a, a, a family funeral and their mother died, um, they passed by each other and wouldn't speak to each other. Um, and anyway, eventually, you know, they were constantly in the courts and eventually they had what they called the global settlement. And among the, the, the terms of the global settlement are that neither, no brother is allowed to disparage another brother and that each time, if they do, there will be a fine, and it's an escalating fine, um, and it's so much money that they don't disparage each other. A little more than uh, fining your teenagers when they swear a little bit, like 50 cents. It's more than that, I think. It's a yeah. bit more than that. <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're talking with Jane Mayer, author of the bestseller book, uh, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll go to our first question here. Hi, my name is Jeff Kurtz, and I'm from uh, Concord, California. And you mentioned for the future and uh, one way that they can keep control of the future, you mentioned Betsy DeVos. And I'm concerned about the future of education in this country as the second after climate that uh, education, the future of education is a problem and how they want to take uh, money out of the, the public education system and put it into private schools where they're teaching alternative facts as fact. I, I think that's a very legitimate concern, um, and because they, you know, if you go back, the best way to understand what the Kochs really want is to look at the um, campaign platform of the Libertarian Party in 1980, which is when um, Charles Koch got David to run as Vice President of the United States, and it lays out what they really want, and they want to abolish almost every part of the government and privatize everything, including education. Um, and, and, and so that, of course, breaks down standards and, and a kind of a consensus understanding of what facts really are in this country. And Betsy DeVos has worked with them on, in this project for years. Um, she's a billionaire and has put a lot of money into the Koch's, you know, political activities. And, um, and you know, she, uh, the, the subtitle of this book describes them as radicals and, um, and, and the reason it, it, I did that was because they describe themselves as radicals. They want to pull things out, the government out, by the root. This isn't a sort of, a, you know, just a little trimming. They have a radical vision of reorienting America. And, um, and education's incredibly important. They've put money into it themselves. As I said, they've got um, 
educational sort of institutes in, in something like 350 colleges and universities. And when they talk about it among themselves, and it's on that tape that leaked out, they talk about it as a pipeline. It's their talent pipeline. And what they're doing is trying to train the next generation to think the way they did. Betsy DeVos's brother, who some people don't know, Eric Prince, founder of Blackwater, is uh, back in the news these days. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm, I'm Judd Williams in Mill Valley, and I wanted to find out uh, if you ran into many friends of Russia. Uh, we've seen that Rex Tillerson is a friend of Russia and that Michael Flynn is a friend of Russia. And it um, seems to me that the oil business is, is really not just a national affair any longer. You know that it, that it's it's that's interesting, isn't it? Because supposedly this policy of the Trump administration is anti-globalism and and you know economic nationalism. Yet you've got these multi uh, multi you know national corporations like Coke Industries and 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 Exxon Mobil who are you know given big platforms in the in this government now. I haven't seen um you know uh, the the nefarious ties that everyone's that we're all looking for between um the the Cokes and uh, or the Mercers and the Russians. There's you know a lot of reporting yet to be done. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, there seems to me there's some dots that are not connected here. We see the Cokes father had vision for the long game. Leave lots and lots of money for family, for generations. Yet, if these Koch brothers have their way, there's what's going to be left? The climate change will leave the place inhabitable. Well, you know, that's a good question. You have to wonder, what what is the vision of this radical... Um, libertarianism. Where, where does it bring us? And it's one of the things you were asked who I'd want to talk to, Charles Koch. It's one of the questions I feel like nobody ever asks. What, what is your actual real-world vision of what a world would look like with no government that, that regulates anything and no taxes? You know, I mean, is this, I mean it, it sounds in some ways like, you know, the most failed states in Latin America um, <laughs> where there's nothing but crime and sort of warlords. I, I, you know, where, where does this take us? And, and on the climate, you know, I, all I can conclude is that the Cokes are deeply devoted to their their company and to their bottom line, and 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 so long as they can stave off a tax on carbon, um, and keep the United States buying fossil fuels, they're making money, and it matters a lot to them. Um, so I, I I see no other explanation for it. Because in the end of the day, one of the things that's interesting about the Cokes also is both Charles and David are graduates of MIT. And they have graduate degrees from MIT, too. These are not stupid men who don't understand science. And so it, 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 at, the, you know, at a certain point, reality conflicts with their pol- politics, and they've chose to stick with their politics and with their bottom line. I think they've had to make a choice, and that's where they are. Are they closely aligned with Exxon and large oil companies that we buy their gasoline? They can't afford to do the thing, say the things that they say. Is there a break there? It's well, there's a- differences. Exxon Mobil is a publicly held company. Right. I mean, okay. and, and if you take a look 
at the, some of the companies that are really most reactionary in this country, a lot of them are privately held. They're not, they're not accountable to stockholders, um, and they don't have to tell anyone what they're really doing. Um, and, and, and it's especially true in the fossil fuel area. If you look at the, independ- the smaller independent um, coal, gas, and oil companies, they are the farthest right companies you can find in this country, um, and a lot of them are privately owned. Let's go to our next audience question. Yes, welcome. Barbara Windham. Um, my question is, uh, how much of the mercer Coke influence was enabled by Citizens United, and what is the chance that it's likely to get reversed? So uh, I think the chances were better before the last election because uh, you had one candidate who was vowing to overturn it. Um, I, I, I think that... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, despite writing this series of books with the dark this and the dark that in the title, I'm kind of an optimist in believing that, um, that, that when things get dark in this country, that people push back. And, I th- you know, this experiment with Citizens United hasn't been with us all that long. It was 2010 when the court made that ruling. And I think we're pretty much getting a graphic illustration of what's wrong with it. You're, you're beginning to see eccentric billionaires warring over, you know, who's going to control American politics. Is it going to be, our, our, is it going to be the Trump family, the Mercer family, the Koch family? It's so far from the idea of what most Americans have about and, what and this democracy is. To be fair, there's families is. on the left too. There's billionaire the families. The Soros family, if you want to it, Steyer, throw them in, yeah. the Steyer family. Even, you know, maybe even if you're a, a, an environmentalist and a Democrat, you might feel very uncomfortable that the Steyer family is, is pouring that much money in. It's, you know, I think they would argue they're trying to balance out the other side and that they don't, they prefer not to be doing it. But just the same, it's not a pretty picture. Um, and I, I, I think, I have to believe people are going to fight back about it. I think a lot of the energy behind Bernie Sanders and even energy behind Trump was discussed in the country about sort of the idea that big money's ruling. We're talking with Jane Mayer from The New Yorker. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hello. um, My name is Peter Ross. I retired from teaching mathematics here. More importantly, um, in the late 50s, I played rugby with Charlie, Bill, and David at MIT for two years. Yay. (laughs) I didn't know that they were wealthy, and we never discussed politics in those days. But so my question is, I read your book very carefully, and it seems very well documented. Uh, What I wonder is, since the book has become a bestseller, has anyone in the Koch family tried to contact you about minor inaccuracies or threatened lawsuits or something else? (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I hear they were good athletes, especially Charles, right? Um, but um, uh, no, and it's a, it's a, it's a point of um, pride and relief, I have to say, that um, nobody's refuted anything of any importance in this book. There's a, you know, a, a name misspelled here or there or a title here or there or something like that. When, when it came out and there was a front page story about the Koch's connection to uh, the refinery in, in Nazi Germany. Um, the Koch spokesman said that, that they had only built part of the refinery, not all of the refinery. So that's as close as we got to anything that, that they complained about. And I thought, you know, that's pretty good. That's pretty so. good. Let's go to our next question. I'd like you to uh, explain a little about the role of dark money in climate change, fossil fuel, 
and more particularly about what happened at Standing Rock. Okay, so I have not covered Standing Rock, and so I, I, I don't feel expert enough about that to know. Um, but the role of fossil fuel money in, as dark money has been, it's, it's been fascinating. It's a very large part of the dark money from what we can tell. The problem with dark money is you can't follow it that well. But what you can see uh, is that there was a, a lot of fossil fuel company money going into funding denial of climate change. And then um, a few years ago, a lot of that money disappeared from visibility in, in kind of disclosed forms. And instead, it seems to have been funneled to one organization in particular. It's called Donors Trust. And it's a group that you can put money in, and it goes into a central pool, and it then spends money, but you can't see whose money's being spent. It kind of takes the fingerprints off. And so Donors Trust now puts a lot of money into organizations that deny climate change, but you can't see if it's the Koch's money or, you know, Ex- anybody, Exxon. any Exxon's money. You can, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a screen, and you can just see that um, it seems as if a lot of the money moved through donors' trust now. Let's go to our next question for Jay oh, Mayer. Uh, hi, my name is Ed. I was just wondering, uh, you described kind of this system of, of dark money. How, how unique is that kind of to America, just in the way it works compared to other countries? Um, oh. do, do, do other countries and the corruption kind of work differently elsewhere around the world? Yes. Um, and in most, you know, sort of um, sophisticated Western democracies, there's so many more uh, rules controlling the amount of money that's going into political campaigns. And, and it, it, we are way off the charts in terms of allowing the, the rich to spend the way they are in terms of, um, you know, as I said, sophisticated Western democracies. There are places in the world... There are oligarchies where where the government is is you know completely overwhelmed and run by um, the people with the most money. Places like Russia, and it's where you know a model that I hope we're not trying to emulate. Also, in parliamentary democracies, the parliament declares an election season. It's more time bound. We have forever perpetual campaigns these days, and right. so the spending never stops. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Uh, I'm Don Draper from San Jose. Do you have any insight into why Trump is so enamored with Russia and with Putin? I know everybody around him has had contacts. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's really strange um, because obviously there's, you know, for, for most of most people, there's not a lot to admire in Putin. So I'm not an expert in this. I did... I did meet with um, the man, Steele, who had the Steele um, dossier and talked to him about it a little bit, and that was very interesting. Um, that His vision of it would kind of make you think that the Russians were manipulating Trump, that they had kind of, um, that he was sort of something of a, a kind of a willing fool for them, somebody who was useful, and that they could uh, cultivate him. And, um, and there was kind of an exchange of information back and forth. Um, you know, I, I, I also assume that maybe, you know, Trump seems to really admire raw power 
and um, and have very little um, respect for sort of the you know what we think of as as kind of soft power and and so um, maybe he you know I just don't know this is a really obviously it's an area where if you're a reporter covering politics now living in Washington we're all asking the same questions and working as hard as we can to figure out what is going on um, and and I, I mean every day is more shocking than the last so. Let's have our last question for Jane Mayer. Okay. My name's Catherine. I'm from San Francisco, and I read your book, and I think it should be required reading in every high school. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So um, I'm kind of curious, actually. I'm kind of hopeful. Has Hollywood come knocking yet? Um, So, yes. But... I'm, I, but for some reason, I'm not allowed to say more about it. So, um, but I, I, you know, but I, I hope someday it turns into something great that um, that the Louis B. Mayer of our, you know, auditorium will care about. You know, we've been talking with Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money: The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club of California in Silicon Valley, and those listening online and on air. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Good night. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.